Today is the 6th of December, 2014, and this is episode 167. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts, just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. I remember pre-ordering with Bitcoin a jalapeno in the summer of 2012 from the now shuttered ASIC manufacturer Butterfly Labs. I also remember arguing with them for a few months once it became obvious that they were going to miss the delivery window until they refunded the dollar amount that I had given them. And, you know, it was Bitcoin at the time I gave it to them. They refunded it to me in Bitcoin and it was about a 50% loss on the Bitcoin that I had put in at the time. So that pretty much did a good job of scaring me away from mining under most circumstances. We periodically receive emails asking for guidance on mining. Specifically, this comes from new users who hear that, oh, well, it's Bitcoin and you can actually just use your computer to mine it. And that was true at one point, but not so much anymore. In an email yesterday, we heard from a listener wanting to know about a cloud mining company that they were interested in. I hadn't heard of the one that they mentioned, so I gave kind of my generic answer that mining by itself is exponentially more risky and dangerous than Bitcoin because it has all the variables of Bitcoin that can go against you, but it also has other variables like mining difficulty that you also don't control and they can also ruin your day. Stephanie, this is the first thing that I hear most times talking to people new to Bitcoin. How do I mine? I know that you've played with altcoins some and that you've played around with that kind of mining scene just for fun. Are you still doing that? What was that experience like and is there anything to it anymore? No, I'm not still doing it and I I wouldn't recommend that anyone else do it either. Like you said, there's just too many things at play and it's gotten to the point where you really can't even get back your investment unless you're a real professional who's actually like pushing the industry forward by building new kinds of hardware and smaller chips in your ASIC machines and stuff like that. I did mine Litecoin for a while. And actually, the reason that I did that was because at the time, I felt that I had sort of missed the boat on Bitcoin mining. I had a couple of friends who really were mining Bitcoin very early on, like 2009, 2010, stuff like that with all kinds, you know, I heard all the requisite like crazy mining rig stories about people buying a bunch of computers or graphics cards when that was available and setting them up in their basement and heating their house. I think, never mind, I won't tell that story. But there were just all these stories of, of people going to crazy lengths to mine Bitcoins early on. And for some of them, that really paid off. Not at the time, not immediately, but once Bitcoin went up in value a little bit more. But that's just the thing. They could have used that money that they (laughs) put into their mining rigs to buy Bitcoin, and they probably could have bought more Bitcoin with it, and they still would have been successful because that's just speculation. And a lot of the people who were successful in mining early on were also speculating on the Bitcoin that they mined by holding on to it, and that's where it really paid off. Mining is a fascinating thing. For those who don't know how it works, I can give my best layperson's explanation, Each miner is trying to find the winning lottery ticket, basically. And what they're trying to find is a a solution, a hash, a math problem, a number that comes out to be a very improbable thing. It's a random number that they're looking for, and they want to have that number meet uh, some specific criteria, like let's say it's less than a million or something like that, or less than 10,000, or it starts with a string of like eight leading zeros. That's very improbable when you're just guessing random numbers. So they have to make a lot of guesses in order to do that. And the difficulty of those guesses goes up as more miners jump into the pool to make it so that a solution is found about every 10 minutes, which is the block generation time. When a miner finds a solution, they get to author a block. They get to 
write down all the transactions that happened in the last 10 minutes in the permanent record of Bitcoin, the blockchain. And as a reward for doing that, as an incentive to keep writing the blockchain, they get a block reward, which at this point is 25 Bitcoins per block. It used to be 50. And most of the people that I know who ever mind jumped in when it was 50. I knew one guy who was finding blocks by himself with just his computer CPU. This is probably back in 2009. And he mined like thousands of Bitcoins. And at the time, he thought, well, this isn't really worth it. I'm going to shut it off. It's using too much electricity. That was how <laughs> little Bitcoins were worth at the time. This may have been around the time of that first transaction where somebody bought a pizza with 10 or 20,000 Bitcoins, something like that. So again, it just kind of proves the point that if you are thinking short term, and if you were thinking short term back in the day when it was kind of feasible to mine Bitcoins as an individual you're not really going to make a profit. And that's kind of how it's designed to be. Like if there were wild profits to be made from mining, then everyone would want to mine. And then you'd have the problem of too much mining power on the network. And there'd be more than is necessary to really like secure the network. And everybody would just be going for the Bitcoins really, and it would lose its purpose. I guess what I'm saying is that it's never really profitable in the short term to mine and so the people who got into it for fascination, especially early on, had the side effect if they held on to their Bitcoins of having the chance to basically speculate on Bitcoin really early on. And that's what paid off for them. Originally, you asked Adam about, was I still mining? And no, initially, I felt that I had missed the boat on Bitcoin mining. So I decided at the time to try mining the next biggest altcoin, which was Litecoin. And that was one of the only all coins that was available at the time when I started mining. I built a computer um, with a couple of graphics cards. It was like a real learning process to learn how to rig all these graphics cards up and see how many I could fit on this one motherboard, <laughs> this one computer. And a lot of them burned out in the process, probably because I wasn't cooling it effectively because the power supply was not quite matched to what what the computer needed. It would shut down and stop a lot. It was There was not 100% uptime. I mean, I made every single mistake that <laughs> beginner amateur miners make, but it was really fun. It was just, it was fun to participate in that and just see how it worked. I basically kind of broke even on the hardware. I made enough Litecoin to pay off the investment that I'd made in building this computer, but also with a lot of electricity. I'm not sure that I broke even on the electricity. <laughs> it was basically like increasing my power bill quite a bit. At some point, I just stopped and that was fine. I, I felt like I got to participate in the experiment. And I know how it works. And I can understand how it works better from having participated in it. But I guess maybe at one point, I had some hope or illusion that maybe I would make a profit. But that wasn't really how it turned out. <laughs> so I, you're actually you've reminded me the one time that I did mine besides that was the ProtoShares launch, which originally was billed, if you remember, as the, the CPU mineable thing. So it was the thing that was going to return an equal spread, a distribution that didn't take into account the, the big ASIC manufacturing ownership and all that jazz. And I think I, I mined two blocks. And then by day four or five, it was too tough and I stopped doing it because it was just bothering my computer and I didn't want to have it on anymore. Yeah, in fact, didn't, well, at the time they were Invictus, but didn't Dan Larimer, who was the architect behind ProtoShares, <laughs> didn't Dan Larimer basically buy a bunch of computers for the purpose of mining proto shares. But then by the time they actually received them, they were basically obsolete because someone had kind of cracked the algorithm and it wasn't worth it anymore. It wasn't, it wasn't that anyone had cracked the algorithm. It's just that there's this really hard problem between having something that's easy to mine and having something that doesn't scale well for a single person who has some money. I mean, that's the issue is that 
regardless of whether it's ASICs or CPUs or whatever, or cloud mining for that matter, it's about the amount of money that you can throw at the problem, really much more than anything else. Stephanie, I, I remember you did an interview with a with a, a new miner, actually. Gosh, this must have been about a year ago. Joe the miner. And uh, this was at the time. Yeah, you remember this? The price was above a thousand. Yes, and he was he was mining on KNC miner hardware, which at the time that was really for stuff, you know. And they've been a leader in the field ever since they got into it. Maybe about oh gosh, a year and a half ago, something like that. But yeah, he bought these expensive machines. He paid like $10,000 for two machines and he used them. He made Bitcoin. This was while the price increase was, was going up around Bitcoin's peak last Christmas. He was able to kind of sell out at the peak and not only pay off his investment, but also have some profit. He was really thrilled about that, but it wouldn't have happened if the Bitcoin price had not gone up. <laughs> Right. I mean, there's that huge variable of luck. I mean, you described it as a lottery ticket, even beyond the lottery ticket element of just winning the race and getting the Bitcoin. There's also this other thing where the price is just completely out of your control. And if it had gone the other way, then he would have had a very negative experience. But because it went this way, it, it was very positive. Yeah. And in fact, I think he he may have even said that he took out like credit. He paid for those machines with credit cards that didn't have interest for a year or something like that. So he had a little bit of protection. But I don't think he paid for those out of cash in his own pocket. I think he was actually taking a, a bigger risk there because he borrowed the money to invest in the mining hardware. If he hadn't been able to pull that off, that would have been bad for him. Adam, you were talking about the lottery ticket aspect of mining. That's why mining pools exist. And maybe this will pull this conversation in the direction we were thinking it was going to go. But basically, Nobody can mine solo blocks anymore with Bitcoin. If you're just a solo miner, if you're mining alone with only your own computing power of machines that you control, then what you're trying to do is a really Herculean task. It's like finding a needle in a haystack. You're using your machine to compute these hashes and hoping that you get one that comes out in the correct way that will fulfill the requirements to solve the block. And the more power that's in the Bitcoin network, the harder that is to do yourself. So if you're a solo miner and you get a block yourself, let's say you win the lottery, you get a block yourself, you're going to get to keep those 25 Bitcoins. You may have to mine for a year in order to do that <laughs> amidst increasing difficulty. But if you get a block yourself, you keep all the block rewards. The reason mining pools exist is because people want to spread out that risk a little bit. So what they do is they pool their mining power together with a lot of other people that increases the likelihood that someone who's in that pool will get the winning lottery ticket. And then what they do is if someone in the pool does solve the block, does get the winning lottery ticket, and the pool will receive the block rewards, then those rewards are spread out amongst everyone in the pool proportional to the amount of power that they contributed to the pool. So it's basically like, like spreading out the risk. So instead of potentially mining for a year, or you may get lucky and get it the next day. But if you're solo mining, you're always taking that risk of how long are you going to have to play the game before you hit the jackpot, even though you keep the whole reward yourself, versus joining a pool and having that sort of guaranteed, If okay, if I put in this much power, I'm going to get this many block rewards back out the other side. And it, it's more of a sure thing. So Bitcoin mining is sort of predictably unpredictable. It's <laughs> kind of what it sounds like. Yeah. You can like judge the odds necessarily but you have no idea when it'll actually fall. It's like flipping a coin. Like statistically, you should know how it's going to wind up, but in practice, you really don't. Cloud miners add like another layer of uh, abstraction on top of that, separating people who are thinking of themselves as miners from the actual work of mining. 
Cloud miners are essentially paying to be exposed to profit generated by mining company machines. But as someone buying cloud mining, you don't actually own or control the machines yourself. So if you have one of these, if a cloud mining operation becomes successful, it actually seems to me that it represents just about the truest point of centralization in the Bitcoin ecosystem that one can imagine. Because you know, unlike a standard pool, it's actually quite difficult for a miner to leave. Andreas, last year, I really got concerned and a little obsessed about the decentralization problem, as I saw it, with Bitcoin. And I'm wondering, like, is decentralization something that's even necessary in this system? And do we have it? It is necessary in the system because consensus attacks can be more easily created. So when you centralize mining power, what you're doing is you're vesting trust in a narrower and narrower part of the system. If you look at the clearinghouse function that miners perform, then the trust that they have to not double spend transactions, to not delay blocks or create restrictions on transactions and blocks, that comes from the fact that they don't have the power concentrated in just a few hands. So as long as you play by the rules, you get rewarded. And the disincentive is that if you don't play by the rules, those who do will be in greater numbers and will actually gain the, the system. If you concentrate power in fewer hands, then you have to vest them with trust. In the ultimate kind of degenerate case, if you like, of Bitcoin, uh, where you have a single mining organization, then that mining organization is the central clearinghouse for all Bitcoin transactions. And effectively, what you've done is you've recreated PayPal, you've recreated Visa, you've created a centralized clearinghouse organization, and now you have to trust that organization, just like you do in a centralized environment like Visa and PayPal. And then on the other extreme, you have power divested to and diffused among as many participants in the network as possible. Now, Bitcoin is, is at neither extreme, it's somewhere in between. And at the moment, there are probably, you know, a couple of hundred large participants in mining who amongst themselves share power over the clearinghouse function for Bitcoin. And that's already far more decentralized than any other payment system we've seen before, but it's far less decentralized than the original vision. But yeah, it is necessary. This episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by CryptoKit.com, the easiest, fastest way to send Bitcoins right from your browser. That's K-R-Y-P-T-O-K-I-T.com if you'd like to learn more. Today's magic word is shovel. That's S-H-O-V-E-L, shovel. You've got until the 10th of December to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iPhone app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. I'd like to just put forth the devil's advocate position here because personally, I, I definitely see the point of why Satoshi built this algorithm in a distributed, decentralized way. The idea that the power and trust should not be concentrated in the hands of one or a few, but as many as possible in order to get that trustless system. At what point are we basically just saying, well, everyone might as well like weave their own shirts out of cotton that they grow in their backyards and grow all their own food? At what point are we ignoring the division of labor thing? 
when I was a Litecoin miner in my short career as a Litecoin miner, I sucked. <laughs> I was burning out my graphics cards. I was creating all this heat. I couldn't keep it cool. I couldn't keep the thing on. I had to keep rebooting it. It was inefficient. And these people who have these large warehouses where they're cooling it with the Arctic cold somewhere in Scandinavia or in the North Pole even, and they're hooking up their machines correctly so that they don't burn out their cards. Whereas I didn't know what I was doing and I had to learn those mistakes the hard way. They're more efficient at doing that than me. So why not have a little bit of division of labor here so that the whole process can be a little more efficient? There are costs to decentralization too. Absolutely. Decentralized systems are far more costly than having a centralized clearinghouse. You do have less efficiency in the labor of the clearinghouse, but that's a compromise that most of the people who are in Bitcoin are willing to make. And the reason they're willing to make that is because when you concentrate power in a clearinghouse, it's more efficient. But then the clearinghouse has enormous power and they tend to abuse that. They use that power in order to establish monopolies so you end up paying for that efficiency and externalities in the system. So let's look at a couple of case studies. I mean, there have been points in the past where some of the Bitcoin mining pools have gotten close to the theoretical scary number of 51%. That is having more than 50% of the network hashing power that they could then use to initiate double spends or to do other nefarious things that could mess with Bitcoin. There was the pool ghash.io. And they did actually get over 51% for a time, right? And then people started to leave the pool, I guess, concerned Bitcoin miners who didn't want that pool to have more than 51% because they feared it would ruin Bitcoin or negatively affect Bitcoin, probably justly so. People left it until it got smaller. And it happened with a couple of other mining pools at, in the past. I can't remember the first time it happened, but it was one of these early mining pools. And now I'm just forgetting their name. Do you, either of you guys remember? This is BTC Guild in the in the old days. BTC Guild, yes, thank you. It happened with BTC Guild where they were approaching fifty one percent as well, or they got close to thirty five, forty, forty five percent of the network power. I guess that was because they were a good mining pool because they figured out how to serve their customers, which are the people who are contributing power to the mining pool, and it, it became popular because they wanted to mining pool where they got the best rewards or whatever service. But then that became a double-edged sword because people started to leave as they became scared of that 51% potential. So there has not yet been an instance where a mining pool had so much hashing power and they decided to abuse it by initiating some kind of double spend. But there have been those instances in altcoins. And actually, that happens quite frequently because, speaking of Bitcoin mining, a lot of people have invested in Bitcoin mining hardware, which is now pretty much worthless for Bitcoin. But if they can find a new altcoin, if it's mining on the same algorithm as Bitcoin, SHA-256, they point their ASIC hardware at it, and pretty soon they might be well on the way to taking over the network of that new fledgling altcoin or the altcoin that not many people are mining on because there are lots of altcoins out there and lots of people's mining power is limited. There have been instances where other coins have these kinds of attacks. I think there was one on TerraCoin. Do you guys remember that? I think we talked about it on the show more than a year ago. Yeah, there have been a few 51% attacks, but there haven't been that many. I think that maybe a couple a month, you know, in, in the entire cryptocurrency panoply, unless I'm just not hearing about most of them. I would say probably they're not like huge events anymore. I mean, what can someone do with a 51% attack is another question. Like it's made out to be this big, scary thing. 
But really, the worst thing that they can do pretty much is do a double spend and then put that double spent coin into an exchange, get real Bitcoin or real fiat from that. And then it was actually a double spend and the exchange is out or they buy a product with it and the product ships or, or something. But mostly it's exchanges. Andreas, would you agree that's pretty much like the worst thing one can do with a double spend attack or a 51% attack? Well, yes. Not only is that the misunderstanding that persists out there is that uh, people can use this to steal money and they can't. You can do a double spend attack that you have to then either get a product shipped or an exchange withdrawal to happen for it to be valuable. However, you can also do a denial of service attack, which is probably more serious. Denial of service attack against transactions or other mining pools in such a way as to maintain dominance over a double spend possibility or capability. So once you get 51% attack, you can use that to keep others from mining blocks to a point where you maintain that hashing power by starving them of rewards. You said the misconception is that people can use a double spend or 51% attack to steal money. You're talking about like rewriting history, right? Like if I have Bitcoins in my Bitcoin address, the idea, which is mistaken, could literally roll back the blockchain and roll back history and take those Bitcoins out of my Bitcoin address and give it to themselves, right? Well, no, not only that, but it has nothing to do with rolling back history. Which there, there's two aspects to that. First of all, you can't create a transaction which you don't have signing authority over it, whether you control 51% of the network or not, whether you can pull off a 51% attack or not. You still can't control funds that you don't have signing authority or keys for. All you can do is spend your own funds and then after someone's exchanged those funds for something else, rewrite history and then spend those funds again and deprive the recipients of those funds from those funds. But you can't spend other people's funds or create transactions that are bogus or signed without having keys and things like that. So there's a big misunderstanding of exactly what you can do. However, the disruptive potential is there. Keep in mind, though, that there's this big economy, which is that the coins on which it is easy to do 51% attacks don't usually have monetary value that is worth doing a double spend attack for. And most of these attacks have just been malicious and denial of service oriented. And the coins that do have value, especially Bitcoin, it's not possible at the moment with, with the hashing capacity that's out there to pull off a 51% attack. And there's a reason for that. It's because the incentives are aligned to prevent you from doing that. First of all, a lot of people are watching so that when a pool gets close to that level, people's livelihood is threatened. This economy is threatened. So people make a big fuss about it. Miners are incented to change pools and do things about it. And people notice when there is a double spend attack or a potential for a double spend attack. So where it's most profitable to do one, it's hardest to do one. And where it's easy to do an attack, it's not very profitable. So that, that's one of the things that makes us, at least makes me look at 51% attacks as a very interesting theoretical possibility and something we, we need to be on the lookout for and be aware of the possibility. But at the same time, I don't consider it a practical threat to Bitcoin as it is today, because I think that the market will always adjust to protect the value of the network. Given that, uh, you know, we think that decentralization is good and we think that it's necessary and, and positive in Bitcoin mining, I've often wondered what is centralization now relative to other times in the past? Because it seems like, again, you know, for the, for many of the reasons that Stephanie mentioned, you know, that simply put, she isn't a specialist in it. And so there's like this natural drive for the people who stay in as the, as the pie stays the same. 
the people who are still maintaining their share of the pie are the ones that are able to continue to increase their productivity relative to the rest of the network. So that's a very elite group of people. So the question here is is basically just has centralization, are are we as bad as we've ever been? Are we, you know, half as bad as we've ever been? What do you think the state is of mining centralization now relative to other times in Bitcoin's history? It's a moving target because the thing is it, it ebbs and flows and it goes in cycles. You have cycles of centralization and then you have cycles of decentralization. The overall trend is towards centralization. You can look at the stats. So, for example, if you look at mining stats or mining charts, places like Blockchain Info or the places that contain mining statistics, you can look at the percentage of blocks being discovered by various mining pools and see how that changes over time. Where do we see mining going from here? (laughs) The natural lead-in, I think, actually, is to talk about uh, BitShares because it is 100 rotating delegates, no mining proof of work whatsoever, like 10 second transactions. And so they're like the example of uh, centralization for those performance increases and for those usability benefits that we're talking about how Bitcoin doesn't really have them. And, you know, like that's a good thing from one perspective in that it provides this stuff, but it also is in theory more centralized because there are only a maximum of 101 participants actually having a say at any given time. Well, if we're going to talk about that, we could also talk about just proof of stake, uh, 100% proof of stake coins, which are really interesting. There are some people who are opposed to them. Uh, One of the biggest criticisms that I've seen is the so-called nothing at stake problem. As I understand it, there's no cost to a proof of stake forger or miner to mining on different blockchains. And so if they if they wanted to mine on an alternate blockchain, they can do that. And they can do it on as many as they want with no cost. Whereas with a proof of work currency, there is a cost to mining on alternate blockchains. Okay, so here's a question, Stephanie. If you had a reasonable amount of pure, of pure coin or whatever, would you have continued mining? Or would you have stopped at basically the same point? Was it about profitability or was it about inconvenience of using mining? Because you were talking about heat and stuff. Well, at the time when I was mining, there really were no proof of stake coins except PureCoin, which is only half proof of stake. It's half proof of work. There were no 100% proof of stake coins at that time. So I didn't really have the option of just uh, using a 100% proof of stake coin. But yeah, I mean, it doesn't... (laughs) Okay, so a proof of stake coin to forge it or mine it, all you have to do is hold some amount of the coin and have the client open. That's just not as fun. Like, there's no engineering involved. So, so the the work makes it fun. The work, you know, that's part of the enjoyment of the process. It was a it was a curiosity thing. I think. I guess it's an accomplishment, whereas this is really just more like, hey, I turned on the oven. Yeah, but it's it's stupid. <laughs> I just love the smell of burnt capacitors in the morning. Yeah, that's what it smells well, yeah, like. Yeah, I mean, that's the question: is does that actually add value? I mean, is that part of what's adding value to Bitcoin? Because I mean, again, like mining, people think about it like. Mining is the process of processing transactions. And that's just not true. Mining is the process of creating a number that is unique to you based on the amount of work that you're putting in, essentially. And then that number is compared against everybody else in the space, essentially. It's a gross simplification. Well, I would disagree with that, Adam. I mean, I think there is a big misunderstanding between means and ends in mining. Currency creation is a reward system. The goal of mining is to provide security and verification of transactions for the network. That is the function of mining. It verifies transactions, it aggregates transactions into blocks. 
and it acts as a gatekeeper to access to the blockchain so that the things that are recorded in the blockchain are verified. The new coins that are created, transaction fees, that's not the goal of mining. That's not why mining exists to just create new coins. You can create coins other ways. Mining exists in order to provide security in the form of a decentralized clearinghouse through consensus. And the reward system is there to encourage that behavior in a way that supports the network and and discourages cheating. But it's it's often easy to confuse the, the means with the end when it comes to mining. Based on the statistics that I'm looking at here, at the moment, the discus fish mining pool has about 28% of the hashing power. This is over the last 24 hours. Over the last four days, again, 28% for discus fish, 16% for ghash.io, 7% for KNC miner, 5% for BTC guild, 5% for Allegius. So I would say based on those statistics that at the moment we are less centralized than we were this past summer when Ghash came close to, I think, 48% or 50% at some point. I don't think they ever hit 51. That's really interesting because basically the giant that last time this was a real concern, Ghash.io, has been unseated and this newcomer discus fish that wasn't even really around that I remember before has risen to the top almost. So it does seem like there's a lot of flux and transition in which mining pools are dominant. Feels like the pendulum swings, right? We just had an election where the, you know, the exist the ruling party was thrown out, you no know, world changing results and all this stuff. And the new party's gone in. Of course, it was the old party eight years ago or six years ago. So, you know, I mean, yeah, it's been alternating <laughs> basically Democrat, Republican, Democrat, Republican in the U.S. for right. Right. So each of them. Well, but I mean, it seems like a similar dynamic is, is at play here, right? Because it makes sense to be part of the biggest mining pool, because that means you get more rewards more often since the pool that you're a part of is finding more blocks than the pools that are smaller. So there's that incentive to be part of the biggest group until you get to that point where the community suddenly essentially turns the eye of Sauron on them and just unleashes the hate and all the miners leave and go to the smaller ones, which then join up with the the biggest, smallest, you know, smaller ones so that they, again, aren't giving up that much of that advantage. And you have exactly the same problem a couple of months later. So I mean, like, it's just like, Back and forth, back and forth. Right now, it appears like we're in... I'll be curious to see if Discuss Fish becomes the next, quote, problem. I really wonder what Satoshi's opinion on this would be. Hopefully, Satoshi's out there, maybe on an island somewhere. (laughs) But yeah, like, what does Satoshi think about this? I think it might have been not what Satoshi expected starting out in Bitcoin when Bitcoin was new. And remember, kids, if you meet Satoshi in the road, kill him. What? (laughs) What? Oh, no, sorry. It's a, it's a Buddha thing. But if someone tells you they're Buddha, then they're not Buddha. So oh. If someone tells you they're Satoshi, then they're not Satoshi because Satoshi wouldn't tell you he's Satoshi. Thank you for explaining that. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to episode 167 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show is provided by Stephanie Murphy, Andreas M. Antonopoulos, and Adam B. Levine. Music for today's show was provided by Jared Rubens. This episode was edited by Denise Levine and Adam B. Levine. See you next time.